We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was an eight-time Major League All-Star. He won six Silver Slugger Awards and three Gold Gloves. He was called the Big Wheel because he drove the train that was the Detroit Tigers offense of the 1980s. When he retired, he stood fourth all-time for home runs by a catcher. And almost 30 years later, he still ranks fifth. And in the seventh inning of game five of the 1984 World Series, his home run off Goose Gossage turned out to be both the game and series winner. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Lance Parrish. Lance, welcome. Thank you, Rich. Good to be with you. Excellent. Well, uh, I look forward to this conversation. And and Lance, as you know, I like to you know just kind of start with like some background and then you know kind of work our way through the arc of your career. So you're, you're born in Clareton, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, around right. age five or six, you move out to LA, kind of East LA. Actually, it was on my sixth birthday that we flew to California, so I'll never forget that. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, and so, so you live in, in an area like East LA called Diamond Bar. Um, your dad is a deputy sheriff in uh, Los Angeles. Is that right? For the sheriff's department? Correct. Okay. Tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up in LA and, um, and you know, were you a Dodgers fan, Angels fan? Did you root for the Rams? You know, kind of what, what was childhood like, you know, growing up in Los Angeles? Well, I'll be honest with you. You know, it's kind of a misnomer that I grew up outside of L.A. or in L.A. Even though we were in L.A. County, um, Diamond Bar was closer to Orange County than it was actually L.A. We were on the very outskirts of L.A. And it was undeveloped land. It was part of the... Uh, Diamond Bar Ranch that uh, they made a couple housing developments in back in the early 60s. And uh, when my dad graduated from the Sheriff's Academy in Los Angeles, you know, my folks were looking for a place to, to move to. And, and that was the place they settled on. So there was a, a North Diamond Bar and a South Diamond Bar development. We lived in the South Diamond Bar development. And in between was nothing but wide open hills and open spaces and I got a lot of exercise uh, crawling around catching everything that roamed around those hills and uh, 
had a pretty good childhood growing up. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's cool. And and you you go to Walnut High School where you are a football, basketball, baseball guy. Correct. And in football, you're uh you're you're good enough that you're uh playing quarterback and defensive back and UCLA has offered you a scholarship. And they ran a wishbone offense. I don't know if I would have really fit into that scheme. I was more of a drop back passer, so I'm not so sure if I'd have actually ended up on offense or defense, but uh, you know, I guess time would have would have told that story. But uh, right. I, I, from from talking to the coaches, they were prepared to go from a uh, option type offense to a passing offense, and you know, I guess we'll never know how that would have turned out. Right, right, yeah, because because in addition to being a very good football player, you're obviously a very good baseball player. And you're drafted in the first round, uh, I think number 16 overall, by the Tigers. And in high school, you had been a catcher. But then as the years went on, you were also playing pitcher and you were also playing some other positions. You were kind of you could kind of do a little bit of everything. Well, you know, I was a pretty good athlete. Um, and, uh, you know, I played wherever, you know, the need was, actually. I, I, didn't, I didn't really put a premium. It seems like they do nowadays with, you know, they – Kids grow up, they want to be a pitcher, they want to be a shortstop, they want to be whatever. I just wanted to play. So uh, initially on my very first uh, Little League team, our manager asked in like the first practice, does anybody on this team catch or want to catch? And nobody said yes and nobody stepped forward. So I looked around and said, I'll do it. (laughs) So that guaranteed me a starting position on the team anyway. So that's where I basically started catching. I didn't know anything about it. And it took me a while to, you know, learn the ropes. And I found out that, you know, I got beat up and it wasn't real comfortable back there all the time, but uh, I learned to love the position. And, uh, you know, as time went on, I, I pitched in little league. I played the infield, played the outfield. It's just, you know, wherever, when he was moving guys around, wherever there was an opening or he needed somebody to go, you know, I generally got the opportunity to go somewhere. I just about played every position on the field, I think, from Little League all the way through the end of my senior year in high school. But my two main positions um, were catcher and pitcher. And I actually didn't start playing third base, which is what I got drafted as by the Tigers, until my senior year in high school because we didn't have anybody to play third base at the time. And I, I guess that's when the Tigers uh, were there to scout me. I was playing third base. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. And we'll, and we'll get into that, like, you know, kind of starting off at third and then, and then the shift to catcher, but one quick question, just, you know, one last thing on, on, you know, kind of your growing up, you know, around LA, um, were you, were you a Dodgers fan an angels fan? I know, I think Johnny bench was one of your heroes growing up, obviously reds. Um, who did you root for? Well, it depended on, uh, I don't know if I, I, well, maybe I did. Maybe I was more of a Dodger fan than I was a, uh, an Angels fan. I mean, my dad was a big sports fan. Uh, not every game like today was on television by any stretch. Uh, the only game we ever really got to watch was uh, on Saturday afternoons, and it just depended on who was on. But uh, my dad was uh, Mr. Fix-It around the house and always had some project going on. So as I was out there hanging out with him and – Typically, when the time was right, you know, we were either listening to the Dodgers, uh, Vince Scully and uh, Jerry Doggett, or we were listening to uh, the Angels. And, uh, you know, 
I would have to say that there was probably more guys on the Dodgers that I gravitated towards. So, uh, and, and actually the only professional games I got to go see out there were at Dodger stadium because my parents coming from Pittsburgh were Pittsburgh pirate fans. So when the pirates rolled into town, that was my only shot at going down to Dodger stadium, Chavez ravine and, uh, and watching some games. So, yeah, but I got to see some, uh, some great players, some great games and got to see uh, Roberto Clemente, uh, when he was doing his thing. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. So, so you, um, so you get drafted by the Tigers mm-hmm. and you're obviously going to go into the minor leagues and you kind of, it's just, it's, it's, you know, rookie year, your first year in Bristol. Um, and I have to ask a question. So you're still playing third base and on that Bristol team in the Appalachian league is um, Mark, the bird Fidrich, who at the time I think was just Mark Fidrich. <laughs> um, <laughs> T- tell me, uh, tell me about the you know the first time you kind of cross paths with uh, with Mark Fidrich. You know, I'll be honest with you, and and along the lines of of his na- nickname, the Bird. I don't think it took too long after he signed where somebody stuck that name to him. So, um, you know, I can't swear to it, and I would say that he probably got that that nickname in the minor leagues uh, as compared to the big leagues. He took that with him when he got called up, but. Uh, I'll tell you what, Mark Fidrich was the life of the party, a lot of fun, um, you know, never a dull moment around him. He had more energy than any two people I was ever around and uh, just kind of bouncing off the walls all the time and loved the game, loved to pitch, loved to compete, you know, and as crazy as he was, um, you know, during the, the downtimes when, you know, we were off the field, when he was on the mound, he was, he was all business. You know, he, uh, he was very, uh, focused. He knew what exactly what he wanted to do. Everybody always makes mention of him talking to the baseball. Well, you know, the way I remember it, he wasn't so much talking to the baseball as he was talking to himself, reminding him what he was wanting to do, what he was trying to do, how he wanted this pitch to go, where he wanted to throw it. Um, so we all kind of got used to that. And, you know, it was kind of a kick for everybody else. Some, some teams thought it was funny. Some teams didn't like it so much. But, you know, we just came to – realized that that's just the way bird was and we just lived with it so it was it was fun and he was and he was successful so it was was fun to play behind him yeah yeah that i mean that summer of 76 now obviously he had just gotten called up and and you were still in the minors but i've I've told people who are younger than me i was like you can't imagine how big that was at the time i mean it's, it's almost the only thing i can even really compare it to was about 10 years ago here in the New York area, Jeremy Lin, the whole insanity thing for the Knicks right, for, right, right. Yeah. for about a month where where just a guy kind of comes out of nowhere and just takes over and then and and is successful. And then it's gone. <laughs> you know, it's just and then after, you know, kind of a couple of months or in, in Bird's case, you know, basically one season. I mean, a little bit of another season, but right. You know, due to injuries, it's just it just what a just an unbelievable, you know, the Monday night baseball game and cover of Sports Illustrated and um uh, okay, that's interesting. And so then, and then you just continue to work your way up. You're in Lakeland, uh, then you're in Montgomery, and that Montgomery team in your Double A year, you're in Southern League. That team starts to look like the 1984 World Series champs. You've got Trammell, you've got Jack Morris, you've got um, uh, uh, guys like Tom Brookins. I mean, you know, guys like Dave Rosema and, and Steve Kemper on that team. Were you kind of looking around, going? I think this we're going to be pretty damn good. I mean, first of all, you won the Southern League that year, so you knew you were good anyway. But right. you know, did you guys start to you know kind of did a bond start to be formed there? 
Well, you know, I um, it's hard to say when you're in the minor leagues who you think. You know, first of all, I never even knew if I was ever going to make it to the big leagues. So, right. you know, well, I struggled my first few years. So things things weren't really looking real good for me. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we had Steve Kemp come on board early, and he was the number one pick in the draft, I think, in the June free agent – or the I'm sorry, the, the January free agent draft after he left USC. And uh, Alan Trammell came along later in the season. He started that year in rookie ball. But uh, towards the end of our season, we needed a shortstop, and they called him straight from rookie ball uh, right out of high school to, to play shortstop for us. Jack Morris was signed out of BYU uh, in the summer, and he went straight from the signing to uh, us in, in Montgomery. So as the season went along, we continued to get stronger and stronger. I mean, we, we started making progress. Les Moss was our manager, and he eventually ended up managing us in the big leagues for a little while. Dave Rosema was uh, pretty much a minor league phenom before he got called up. And um, gosh, I'm trying to think Sheldon Burnside, a left-handed pitcher pitched on that team and ended up making it to the big leagues. I think Tim Corcoran was there for a while. You know, we had a lot of guys coming in and out, so I can't really remember off the top of my head who was, who was all there, but uh, we had a pretty solid ball club and Les Moss was a great manager and he kind of shaped and molded us and pushed the right buttons. And we ended up winning the Southern league. So it was a, it was a really good year and a lot of fun. And actually, um, you know, when I was a rookie, we won uh, the championship in uh, Bristol, Virginia, the Appalachian League championship with Bird and, and those guys. And then Lakeland, we all went to Lakeland the next year and got crushed. I don't know what happened there. But then after that, a, a bunch of us went to Montgomery for double A and we won the Southern League championship there. So, you know, we had the workings of some pretty good players plus the additions made along the way. But, uh, you know, I think our, our minor league system was starting to really come around and, and be productive where we had quite a bit of talent to offer. And it was, you know, timing is everything, like they say. But, you know, the, the old guard was kind of getting phased out up in Detroit, and we were looking like the, the new young nucleus that, that might move up there. Sure. And they always say in baseball, you need strength up the middle. And I, I find it interesting that you get called up late in the 77 season. Ralph Houck is the manager. He's a guy who's won World Series with the Yankees, you know, in the, the prior decade. And you and Trammell and Whitaker all come up basically within about five days of each other or something like that. Your debuts are all within a few days. Um, and, you know, you talk about strength up the middle, you catching and them, you know, kind of in the middle infield for the next, you know, 10 years, 15, well, in their case, 20 years. Um, you know, pretty amazing. Like that is, you know, kind of the adage right there, but your second game up, you get four RBI, you hit a home run. And there's a quote from, uh, from, I think the Associated Press says that, uh, that Paris stood out like King Kong atop a phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> I never did see that, or I don't remember it, but you know, I did have a good game and it was, uh, it was a heck of a lot of fun. My parents were in the stands. Uh, they never really had an opportunity to come and watch me when I was in the minor leagues. So when I made my debut in Detroit, they were there. Uh, first game I played, I think I was 0 for 2 or whatever. And uh, and then the second game I played was when I got three hits and four RBIs and got, you know, my first hit has kind of a strange twist to it where um, I got jammed so bad that it was like the ball I hit was in slow motion, a line drive going over the pitcher's head. And he jumped up for it and uh, it just went over his glove. Okay. 
and it landed right in between the pitcher's mound and second base and just laid there in the grass where nobody could get to it and I beat it up. So, you know, it's, you know, the typical thing that happens after that is they call timeout and they take the ball out of the game so that I can have it as, you know, a souvenir for my, you know, my first hit in the major leagues. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm standing on first base thinking, you know, of all the things to do, and this is my very first hit, I about broke my fingers when it hit my bat. But when the inning was over, I got back into the dugout and somebody walked over and handed me my baseball, my souvenir, and it had Band-Aids all over it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that was a lot of fun. And, and, you know, I hit my first home run that game. I hit a double with the bases loaded and, you know, knocked everybody in. And so, I mean, it was a, it was a fun, fun deal. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, it's kind of all downhill from there, but uh, you know, cause I was playing sparingly when, when, you know, that month rolled around, I, I got a chance to play a few times, but uh, you know, it, it was all good. I loved being up there. Yeah. And you, and, and you're, I guess your first, you know, kind of a couple of years, you're splitting time with Milt May. Um, oh. And like I mentioned, Ralph Houck is the manager and he's like, you know, kind of an old school guy. Uh, what what was it like playing for a guy like that? You know, he had managed, you know, Mickey Mantle and those guys at the Yankees back in the 60s. What was that, What was playing for Houck like those first couple of years? Well, I can tell you a funny story leading up to that. When I first got drafted out of high school, uh, my my high school baseball coach pulled me out of my math class. Uh, I think it was the last period of the day or whatever, and uh, pulled me out in the hallway and said, congratulations, you're, you're the number one pick of the Detroit Tigers, because obviously the draft was that day. And I was, you know, I didn't even know anybody on the Tigers. I didn't know anything about the Tigers, let alone anybody else. That's how far, you know, back in those days, uh, it's not like I read the sports page every day or I could watch ESPN or whatever. The only guys I knew of were guys that were local, okay? So after my class was over, I ended up going down to the athletic building where all the coaches were. And uh, our athletic director was also our head football coach. We're standing in this room with all these coaches. And he goes, well, what do you think about the chance to be able to play for Ralph Houck? And I was just like, who's Ralph Houck? <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't even know who Ralph Houck was. You know, <laughs> and he just looked at me like he couldn't believe that I said that. And he goes, are you kidding me? And I go, I, I, don't, I don't know who Ralph Houck is. So, I mean, I quickly got an education on that. I mean, they made me feel like I was that big. But, uh, you know. <laughs> Throughout my time, you know, working through the minor leagues when Ralph was still the manager there, I got to, to know him a little bit, learned a lot about him, his military career, work, you know, managing the Yankees and all that. So obviously he was a, not only a great human being, but a, a, a great baseball manager and a leader of men. And um, unfortunately, when, you know, my first year up there, he decided that that was going to be his last year. So he stepped down. But uh, just a great guy. I mean, he's a, he was a player's manager. He always stuck up for his players. I remember getting thrown out of my first game, and he came out and put on the, the best show I've ever seen, you know, going toe-to-toe with the umpire and guy right in his face. And he always used to throw his hat down and kick it, you know, and, and he went through all that. And I was just standing back like, oh, my God. So, you know, this guy's really, you know, putting it to this guy on my behalf, which I love. But uh, at the end of the deal, I was still thrown out of the game. So <laughs> I had to go to the- I had to go to the dugout, but uh, it was just for, you know, arguing balls and strikes with the umpire, which I've quickly learned, you know, you got to be, you got to be politically correct when you do stuff like that. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, I love playing for Ralph, would have loved to have played with him and for him uh, a little bit longer, but, you know, 
he decided to shut her down in Detroit. And then I thought he was going to retire and he ended up going to Boston managing the Red Sox for a little while. So mm. it was good. All good. That's cool. And, and on that team, it, it's kind of interesting. So obviously the young guys are coming up, you and, and Trammell and Whitaker, but you've got Rusty Staub who's there and he's obviously, you know, kind of always produ- productive. He's driving at a hundred runs every year and all that. And Ron LaFleur, which, you know, for, for some listeners, they're going to say, oh, my God, he was amazing. You know, great stolen base guy. Some people might not know the story. This is a guy who grew up in Detroit, who was incarcerated for armed robbery of a bar in Detroit. Somebody gives a heads up to a bar owner that this guy could play ball, even though he had never played organized baseball his entire life. No high school, no nothing. Billy Martin, who's the prior manager to Houck, goes into the prison and basically gets him, interviews him, brings him out for a tryout, and they sign him. And you join that team. He's like leading the league in steals, second in the league in steals, you know, each of the first couple of years. What was what was LaFleur like and, and what was Rusty Staub like? You know, guys like that. Well, it's kind of two ends of the spectrum right there as far as personalities and, uh, and the type of players that they were. Um, first off, Ron LaFleur, when I signed out of high school, and I came to Lakeland, Florida for extended spring training. Ron LaFleur was playing in Lakeland with the Lakeland Tigers. And one of the few uh, nights that uh, I had the opportunity to go to a Lakeland Tigers game. And, you know, some guys wanted to go watch a game. And I'm like, yeah, why? You know, I have nothing else to do. So, yeah, let's go do it. So I'm sitting up in the stands and uh, all of a sudden this guy comes up to bat, you know, for our team, the Lakeland Tigers. It's ground ball to short. And I mean, he took off like a jet and beat the throw to first base. And I was just like, oh, my God. You know, I, did I really see what I just saw? I mean, this is like the fastest guy I ever saw in my life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we started talking about, oh, it's Ron LaFleur. That's the guy they got out of prison and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, whoa. So anyway, fast forward, I go to rookie ball and, you know, I, I don't see him again until um, at the end of the season, we both end up in instructional ball together. Okay. And, you know, this guy is built like Charles Atlas, you know, and if people, you know, read any of the stories about him or watched the movie with LeVar Burton uh, starring as him, you know, he used to tell us stories about uh, when he was in prison, he used to, uh, they used to have a, 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 a chain gang or whatever, or a work group that used to go out and, uh, have to work on the roads or work out in the fields or whatever. I think at one time they had him out in the field picking potatoes or something. Mm. And I think one day they came to get him and he said, I- I'm not going anymore. I'm, I've had it with picking potatoes. I'm not. So he says that they literally beat the crap out of him and put him in solitary confinement. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was, that's the way he tells his story. And mm. then he said, when he was in solitary confinement, he says, if when you're in solitary confinement, let me tell you, he goes, you can hear what's going on, you know, around you outside the prison. You know, they still have the bars and the windows or whatever. He says, all I heard all night was people crying and moaning and screaming. And he goes, it, it literally will drive you insane. And he goes, and I couldn't go to sleep the first few nights. So he said, I started doing push-ups and sit-ups till I was absolutely exhausted and I would pass out at night so that I could sleep through all of that. And he used to do the craziest push-ups where he had his arms stretched out and do fingertip push-ups. And I mean, his guy was just super strong. So anyway, all that to say that when I saw this guy, I mean, I know people have 
looked at pictures of racehorses where, you know, these thoroughbreds have like veins popping out all over their legs and their butt. That's the way he looked. And he was super strong, super fast. And, uh, you know, and, and in reality, he never really played any baseball until he got to prison. And I think that was one of the things that, you know, allowed him uh, some type of a diversion from, you know, just hanging out in his cell all the time. They were asking guys who wanted to be on the prison baseball team. So he said, yeah, I'll do it. Well, then they had, he was so good that the warden sent word to somebody with the Tigers. And like you say, Billy Martin ended up going down and checking him out and they ended up signing him. And, you know, he made it to the big league. So his story alone was just amazing. And he was a very gifted athlete. I, I'll, I'll say this about him. He, I think he's probably at the top of the list of guys that I saw um, get picked off at first. When he, you know, he would, he'd already be taken off, though. And the pitcher would throw the ball to first base. And he'd beat the relay throw to second base almost every time. That's how right. fast it was. So I was like, wow, this guy's amazing. And then shift over to Rusty Staub. Well, Rusty Staub was already an established, you know, star player when I got there and uh, was a gourmet chef. Yeah. Uh, he always had me and uh, S- Steve Kemp, Jason Thompson, Phil Mankowski, and Tim Corcoran. We were all, we all lived in the same uh, apartment complex. So he used to have us over and he'd make these unbelievable gourmet meals for us. You know, it was crazy. You know, but uh, he loved to cook. So, you know, we'd all get together and have a few drinks. And, you know, he would, you know, make these amazing uh, feasts for everybody. So, you know, that was my introduction to Rusty Staub. And then um, Rusty Staub, the baseball player, you know, I have to laugh at it now because, uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody gets the treatment that he used to get when he was there. But uh, when he would get to the ballpark, he had a routine. Okay. And he would, uh, he would get his. Uh, he would go in and, and take a nap in one of the back rooms. Nobody was allowed to go back there until he was done taking his nap. And then when he got done with his nap, he'd go into the training room. The trainer would massage his feet, and then tape his ankles. And I think they would tape his ankles for batting practice. And then when batting practice was over, he'd come back in and they'd cut the tape off, and let his feet rest. And then prior to the game, they'd retape it. You know. So <laughs> I was like, wow. You know, I never seen anything like that. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you know, we'd get into the game. And, you know, the thing that Rusty was probably as good at as anybody ever saw, when there was a guy on first base and the first baseman was holding that runner on, he could hit that ball in that hole between first and second as good as anybody ever saw. You know, and he choked up about six inches on his bat. He used one of those big, those bats with the big barrels on it. And uh, he'd choke up and, it, you know, I mean, it was all barrel. And I, I mean, if I saw him once, do it once, I saw him do it a hundred times, hit a, you know, smoke a ground ball through that hole when somebody was on first base. And I just thought, man, this guy's amazing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when we travel on the road, he had, he was the first guy I knew that had brought his own trunk of Perrier water. He, he wouldn't <laughs> drink any water that anybody else gave him. He had to have his own Perrier water. And, uh, um, you know, just, just, I mean, he could hit. Flat out deal. And, and the last thing I'll say is this. Very intelligent man, obviously. Um, he would sit up in the clubhouse because he was our DH. You know, he, he very rarely played. He just dh all the time. And he would do the New York Times crossword puzzle, okay? And we didn't have a TV in our clubhouse back then. We had a radio. So, you know, he'd listen to the game. 
and he would go up in the clubhouse and take his shoes off and he'd have his bat next to him and he would sit there and do crossword puzzles. And uh, he'd listen to the game and it was getting close to him being up to bat, put his crossword puzzle down, put his shoes on, walk down to the, the dugout and get ready to hit. And he told the bat boy, when I'm done hitting, you hang on to my bat. And he goes, when I come off that field, you come over and hand me my bat. Don't put it back in the rack. You hand it to me when I come off the field. So it's like, yes, sir. Yeah, I am. So when he'd come off the field, the bat boy would hand him his bat. He'd walk right back into the clubhouse, sit down, take his shoes off, and start doing his crossword puzzle again until his next time he was up. I mean, it was a routine. And honest to God, that's the truth. He would do it all the time. But, uh, you know, all the little quirkiness about him, but he was a fun guy, and he could hit. And, you know, he was just a great asset to our team. And I learned a lot of stuff from him. So he's a good guy to be around. Yeah. Oh, that's great. God, I'd never heard those stories. That's fantastic. <laughs> and so, and then, and then it's interesting. So you got, and this is, this is back when obviously you just had the American league, East and West national league, East and West, only one team goes basically your entire decade in Detroit, you guys have a winning record every year. And yet there are years where you might be, you know, 10, 15, you know, games over 500 and your fifth place. I mean, that's how well, first, that's how competitive the AL East was, but also just how tough it is when only four teams are going. Um, Les Moss, who you mentioned earlier, one of your managers in the minors, you know, kind of a Tigers, you know, a guy, you know, a, a system guy. He comes up and he's managing when Hauk resigns. And then halfway through that season, you guys are actually playing pretty well. Sparky Anderson comes in. Now, he obviously had managed the Reds to, you know, a couple World Series championships, the whole big red machine. And then Cincinnati kind of inexplicably lets him go. And Sparky comes in as your manager. What, what's kind of the thinking in the clubhouse? Like, I'm sure most of the guys on the team had played for Les Moss at some point and liked him. But but here comes Sparky Anderson. Uh, you know, what, what's how's that dynamic work out? Well, to be honest with you, I was pissed off. <laughs> you know, uh, we all knew who Sparky Anderson was. I mean, sure. you'd have to be a living under a rock to know that, not know that. Um, but as you mentioned, Les Moss had just taken over as our manager. And I played for him not only in AA, but I played for him in AAA the next year. And I've said this a million times. If it wasn't for Les Moss, I'd have never made it to the major leagues. I mean, he, was, for me, was the greatest teacher and mentor that I could have had in the minor leagues. He actually, you know, changed me around to the point where I became a major league player. Yeah. Um, so I gave him all the credit. And uh, I thought he did such a great job with everybody in the minor league. I mean, I watched him. He, he's an ex-catcher, so obviously it benefited me. But it always seemed like he always knew the right button to push and what to say and what to do when it came to managing. Um, as far as drills to do for infielders or, or – what pitchers needed to do to get back on track or, you know, overcome some, you know, delivery issue that they were having. And, you know, with me, helped me with my blocking pitches and calling pitches and, you know, all the whole, the whole gamut for catching. So when he got the opportunity to, to come up to the big leagues and manage, I was fired up for it. Cause I thought if anybody deserves this, it's him. Right. So uh, he gets up there and we just come off the West coast in June. Um, and the next thing I know, you know, he's gone and Sparky Anderson's our manager. And I was like, and, and we had just, I think, gotten our 
record over 500 and we're playing pretty good baseball. So I, I didn't understand the whole deal. I was like, what, what the heck happened? Well, you know, I, you know, listen to enough stories and, you know, Jim Cam. Well, I mean, Sparky, Sparky, let's put it that way. I mean, sure. we had the opportunity to get Sparky Anderson and it was, you know, our, our, I mean, our general manager just couldn't overlook that opportunity. And, and, I, and in retrospect, I guess I don't blame him. Although right. I felt bad for Les at the time because I felt like he, you know, got the short end of the stick on that. And really didn't get an opportunity to prove himself. But I was, I guess, uh, I felt good for him that when he left the Tigers, he was able to go elsewhere and 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 be successful at what he was doing. You know, he worked for the, the Giants organization for a while. He went to Houston and was the pitching coach for that staff when they had Nolan Ryan and Mike Scott, Danny Darwin, and all those guys. Oh, wow. And I had played, I had played with Danny Darwin in Toronto the last year of my con for the last year of my career. And we got on the subject out of the blue one day of Les Moss. And, and he couldn't say enough nice things about him. Everybody loved Mossy and you know, Nolan loved him and Mike loved him. I love everybody, you know, you know, he was so great. And I, you know, that just made me feel good, you know, because I I felt like, you know, he deserved that and you know, he was a good guy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when Sparky came over, it was, uh, I mean, uh, just uh, complete. I mean, everybody was, you know, some guys were freaked out because they knew what Sparky was all about. In fact, a couple guys, Milt Wilcox and uh, Jack Billingham, actually played for Sparky in Cincinnati. And, and we had both of those guys on our team. So it was yeah. like, oh, man, you know. So they start telling every all the pitchers all the war stories about, you know, Captain Hook and, you know, you better, you know, the minute you start, you know, look like you're losing it, he's going to yank you right off the mound. And so everybody was paranoid about that. But I think the main thing that he did initially when he came over was, uh, you know, he tried, he, his main objective was to change the culture in our clubhouse. You know, we were a bunch of young guys. Uh, they were, they had not yet weeded out all the older guys. And, um, uh, and he was going to be the lead cog in, you know, rebuilding our team. And I think it all started with, you know, I'm the boss and you do what I say kind of a thing. And I mean, if he said it once, I don't know how many times he said it, he'd tell us stories about, you know, when he goes back home to uh, California, he's got a garden. You know, he loves to grow his plants and his tomatoes and his this and his that. And he was trying to use the analogy of, you know, good people and bad people on teams. And, you know, I love my, you know, I love my players on my team and, and, I, and I love the plants in my garden. But every once in a while, a weed would pop up in my garden and I'd have to go over and pluck that weed right out of there. And then he'd look around and always would wiggle his finger, you know. And so let that be a lesson to, you know, whoever. If you think that you can come in here and, you know, be a bad guy or, um, be a bad influence or any, you know, whatever. He said, just remember, I, I have the authority and you will be gone. And I think a couple of days later, it just so happened that one of the guys on our team that was, you know, having some issues, he was, he was gone. So I was yeah. like exhibit a right there. So he didn't mess with Sparky, but I think everybody grew to love Sparky. I think they all kind of, after a while, understood the method to his madness. Uh, he was a, he was a, I mean, you talk about a guy being a stickler on fundamentals. When we used to go to spring training, 
my gosh, it was like we'd spend hours doing the same thing over and over. It was so monotonous. I mean, people would go crazy. But every once in a while, he'd take the time to address that and go, look at He goes, here's the deal. He goes, you know, doesn't matter what you say to me. It doesn't matter, you know, all the moping and, you know, whatever you're doing. He goes, here's the deal. When the season starts, he goes, we're going to be ready. And the other team is going to be the team that makes the mistakes. We're not. He goes, because if you look back at all the games you've played throughout your career, a lot of times one mistake ends up costing you the game. And we're going to know where to throw the ball, where to hit the ball, what to do when certain situations come up. And he says, and if we have to do this stuff a million times, we're going to do it. And sure enough, we did. And, you know, from that moment on, we just started to become, maybe that's why they called them the big red machine because they were so disciplined and, you know, that not only were, you know, great hitting ball clubs and whatnot, but they knew how to play the game. And I think he, his goal, his objective early on was to get all of us to learn how to play the game and respect the game and uh, play for one another and play for the team. And so, you know, from that perspective, he always talked about good people and being a good teammate and doing the right thing and playing the game the way it's supposed to be played. So, you know, I think everybody that came away from playing for Sparky um, appreciated that approach that he had. Yeah. And, and it's, it's it's funny, his first year, um, and you guys are good. I mean, you, you guys, you know, above 500 and all that. Um, you guys go to play the White Sox at the old Comiskey. Bill Veck is the owner. He's crazy. And he has disco demolition night between uh, two games of a doubleheader. And the, the second game, I mean, you know, for anybody who's seen it, it's crazy. They're, you know, blowing up disco albums in the middle of the field and fans come storming on the field. Obviously they're all lubricated and, and they tear up the field and you guys are forfeited. They forfeit the game to you, nine, nothing. Tell me about like, I mean, tell me about the chaos of being a major league player. You've just finished a game. You're in the clubhouse getting ready for game two. And all of a sudden there's just, you know, that is happening outside. Well, you know, it was, uh, I mean, you're right about Bill Beck. I mean, there was, uh, you know, promotions, and then there were promotions. But uh, he had, uh, you know, worked with this uh, station, but it was something to loop, okay? It was a rock and roll station. So uh, anyway, they had a promotion that during that doubleheader where um, it was it was described as anti-disco night, okay, or disco demolition night or however you want to call it. So we had heard about it, and it was like, well, what the heck's this all about, you know? And, and the deal was if you brought a disco album or a disco record to the game, you got in at a discounted price, a dollar. I don't even know what it was. But, you know, they expected whatever they expected. And I think they far exceeded whatever they ex- were expecting attendance-wise. And uh, the idea was, because it was a scheduled doubleheader, that they were going to have a big, huge wooden crate out in the middle of center field. Um, and as, you know the big promotional celebration. Um, they were going to put all these albums that they collected in this big wooden crate, and they were going to blow them all up in the middle of the stadium. So all the rock and roll fans could, you know, go crazy, which they did. <laughs> so the, the interesting thing, though, was throughout the course of the game, because it started a little bit later. I, think. Um, I don't believe it was a, uh, a earlier in the day. It was a, a I don't even know what time the starting was, but it seemed like um, in between games, it was starting to get dark. Anyway, um, I remember 
people had to bring more than one album or more than one record because people were throwing albums like Frisbees out of the stands and they yeah. were flying out of the stands and back in the stands. I was thinking, you know, there's some people up here that are going to get maimed from getting hit in the side of the face with an album or whatever they were throwing. And I remember looking down to our bullpen, which was situated um, right down the right field line. Um, and Ed Putnam was our, was a backup catcher. And later on in the game, we had somebody warming up and somebody threw an M80 out of the upper deck. And it looked, it looked, I mean, I just happened to be looking down there and all of a sudden it went kaboom right above his head. I mean, if it had went a little bit further, it would have blew his helmet right off his head. But it was, I mean, it sounded like a hand grenade going off. So it was like, oh my God. And people were throwing uh, golf balls out on the field that had disco sucks painted on them and, you know, just everything. It was, it was insane. I mean, the whole first game was nothing but, you know, insanity and people throwing stuff out on the field and fireworks. And I mean, it was crazy. So anyway, we go, we, we won the first game and we go into the clubhouse and they had a little TV monitor or whatever. And we got up there, you know, to grab a little something to eat and get ready for the next game. We noticed everybody within the ceremony they had on the field, they blew them albums and all of a sudden everybody started pouring out of the stands. So we're watching it going, Oh my God. And now they're not only out of the stands, but they're, tearing the grass the sod out of the ground they're trying to get the pitcher's rubber out of the mound they're stealing the bases they're actually trying to get home plate cops are running around everywhere ground crew guys were running around everywhere. and everybody's like wow so i remember dave rosma and uh bird who was with us at that time yeah. um ran down to the dugout because they wanted to watch what was going on and the the police that were down there made them go back into the clubhouse they told him it's not safe down here. You get out of here and get back up into the clubhouse. So we had, we sat up there and waited for, you know, to see what was going to happen. They had uh, um, Harry Carey was on the, on the uh, PA system, you know, okay, everybody, you've had enough fun, you know, let's, you know, get off the field. Well, they wouldn't get off the field. And they tried that. I don't know how many times. And, uh, you know, I think at a certain point, Sparky was like, wait a minute you know, this is ridiculous, you know, yeah. and I don't know who brought up the idea of, you know, this is a forfeit situation, but eventually that's what ended up happening. And they, uh, they had to forfeit the game, but I mean, it was the craziest night that you, you can imagine. In fact, if anybody wants to watch it, I know that you can go on YouTube and watch disco demolition night in Chicago. Cause I know they have a big video clip of it. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you see it and it's like surreal. You can't believe it's like in, in professional sports, this is happening. Oh, happened. I know. Well, it, was <laughs> it was crazy. Um, and and but you know, at this point now, you know, you're you're playing for Sparky. You guys, you know, continuing to win, and you're starting to become an all star. You know, many years, Silver Slugger Award to you know, gonna best batter at your position. A couple of gold gloves, well, three gold gloves, and they're kind of moving some pieces around on the team. They bring in uh, Larry Herndon, and they bring in Chet Lemon. He comes in for Steve Kemp. And, and, you know, becomes like, you know, rock solid center fielder for you guys. Um, and at the same time, all of a sudden, you know, Jack Morris and Dan Petrie are starting to establish themselves in, uh, in the rotation. Um, and it's along those years where you hit 32 home runs and you set the record for catchers, uh, home runs in a season for a catcher. Um, as you were kind of going through that season, did you recognize that that you were kind of on track to hit to break that record was that something that was you know you were aware no, of? because nobody clued me into that until almost when the season was over i didn't even know you know 
I mean, I knew I was having a pretty good year hitting home runs, but uh, yeah. I didn't know I was closing in on any record. And then come to find out, uh, you know, this is a record that was set in 1956 by uh, Yogi Berra and Gus Triandos. They both shared that record. So, uh, you know, I eventually ended up surpassing it, and it was great to be a record holder for a short period of time because it was like the next year, Carlton Fisk, you know, hit, you know, however many he hit and passed me up. So I was like, so the record lasted from 56 to 82 or whatever when I broke it, and then me holding on to that record lasted like one year and then fist passed me up. So I didn't get to enjoy it for very long, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, fun to be able to do that. Uh, that was the year actually that, um, I went to spring training and I was way bigger and stronger than I had been in a long time or my whole career. In fact, uh, I tell the story where, uh, Sparky Anderson and the trainers went around the clubhouse the year before at the end of the season and gave everybody a reporting weight. You need to come to spring training at this weight. This is your reporting weight. And they let everybody know for every pound you're over your reporting weight, it's $100. So you better get in here and you know be at your reporting weight. So my reporting weight was 220. And when he said that to me, I go, Spark, I go, I haven't been 220 the whole year. And I, I played an entire season. And he goes, well, I just, you know, we all think that that's, a good playing weight for you. And that's, you know, that's your reporting weight. That's just the way it is. And I'm just, I go, Oh my gosh. So I, that winter I went home and I worked out like a maniac. And uh, I mean, my wife used to get on me cause I was always, I was making those Rocky uh, shakes with like half dozen raw eggs, and, you know, all kinds of crazy powders and stuff that you get from the health food store. But uh, I packed on some serious muscle. I was working out with Brian Downing and a, another friend of ours all winter long. And when I came to spring training, when I got on the scale, I weighed 248. So I was substantially over my reporting weight, but you know what? They never said a word to me about that, but Sparky threw little digs at me in the paper throughout spring training that I was, I was too big and I wasn't flexible enough, or he was afraid that I wasn't going to be flexible enough. And, and, you know, one of the things that I always took pride in was not only that I tried to get as strong as I could, but I tried to maintain my flexibility. And I said, hey, I'll go out here and have a stretching contest with anybody, you know, because I've really worked at trying to keep, you know, stretched out as well as get strong. Well, that year and that year happened to be the year that I hit the 32 home runs and set that record for home runs. And at the end of the year, I think Sparky made a comment in one of the columns that, well, let's just say this: it's not for everybody. (laughs) So (laughs) the interesting thing about that is, is, you know, I always used to get grief from him about working out and lifting weights and whatnot. But um, when I left there, the Tigers invested in a huge weightlifting facility and got a strength and conditioning coach and all that, you know, not because Sparky wanted it because when Bo Schembechler came in to be the general manager for a short period of time, when Monaghan was the owner, uh, he, he's the one that implemented all that, you know, football mindset, Guys got to lift weights, got to get stronger. I want to, you know, uh, a conditioning coach in here to, you know, run everything. And that kind of started them off in that direction. And then nowadays you look out there, as you're well aware, every major league team has its own weightlifting facility in their stadium. Every minor league team pretty much has their own weightlifting facility. They all have strength and conditioning coaches and, and all of that throughout the system. 
And back when I played in the minor leagues, there were no weight rooms and there were no strength and conditioning guys. So, you know, baseball has evolved quite a bit, you know, since those days. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll take credit for that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it is funny. I mean, you know, kind of reading up on things. Yes. I mean, Sparky definitely had issue with the whole weightlifting thing. Oh, he did. He did. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned Brian Downing, because that was something, you know, at the end, obviously, you know, the last couple of years of your career, well, for, for a period at the end of your career with the Angels. And I was going to ask you if you lifted with Brian Downing, because he was, I always think of like, you know, you two as being two of the guys who were at the kind of cutting edge of the weightlifting. So well, we trained together before we were actually teammates. So yeah, we uh, we got after it pretty good. Oh, that, that's pretty cool. other way. He pushed me. I know that. Yeah, yeah, he was a big guy. Um, and well, it's interesting. Speaking of the football, so uh, around you know kind of those early '80s, that's when Kirk Gibson comes in. Obviously, yeah. star wide receiver at Michigan State chooses baseball, kind of like you did. Um, you know, chooses baseball, comes in. Also, Rick Leach, the quarterback at Michigan for four years, comes in. Yeah. He's on the team, kind of a bench guy, utility guy. Um, did the team start to adopt? And this is obviously before Schembechler came in as president. Was there kind of a football mindset? Like, you know, we're going to be tough and, you know, kind of in your face a little bit. Um, you know, I really know what the motivation was for other than, you know, Kirk was just a phenomenal athlete and yeah. he had an unbelievable year at Michigan state playing baseball. And I have heard the story that the only reason he played was to enhance his, uh, negotiating power when he got drafted in the NFL. Um, you know, I think his uh, football coach told him, look, it, you need to go play baseball and get away from football for a while. And, and if you do well enough, you know, it could work to your benefit kind of a thing. And uh, he turned out having an amazing year and, you know, hit the ball nine miles. Um, of all the people that I've ever played with or played against in my entire career, I don't think I've ever seen anybody that had as much power or could run as fast as Kirk Gibson. You know, everybody would always ask me, who's the fastest guy you've ever seen in Major League Baseball? And I've always said, until I see somebody beat Gibby, <laughs> it's Gibby. Because right. we always had guys, you know, we always had all these running things we had to do in spring training um, with Sparky. Uh, a lot of times we'd start our day out having to run laps around the field, you know, and it got to be some ridiculous number like, you know, you'd end up having to run four or five or six or whatever. It's like, oh, my gosh. But, you know, Gibby would never let anybody beat him. That was the thing. So somebody would always at some point try to challenge him, you know, I try to pace themselves and think, okay, this is the day that I'm going to get him. You know, it was either Bird or it was Jack Morris or it was somebody that had, you know, pretty good athletic ability and could run. But, you know, as soon as they – get by him and try to, you know, kick it in. He would take off like a jet. He'd beat everybody every time. And I've saw Jack Morris try to challenge Gibby from foul pole to foul pole in Toronto in a sprint race. You know, it was like, you know, head-to-head uh, -head deal. And I think they didn't even get halfway across the outfield and Gibby had him by 15 or 20 yards. So Jack just stopped. But, you know, <laughs> Gibby had world-class speed coming out of college. He ran a 4-2-40 or whatever, which was insane. And I've yeah. seen him hit balls and heard stories when I wasn't playing with him of balls he hit in other locations that were, you know, stuff of legends. But uh, I've seen him hit balls so hard that I thought he was going to kill somebody on the infield. So he's just a great talent. Rick, on the other hand, um, I don't think he ever really got the opportunity to prove what he could do. I mean, he, he didn't have that kind of power speed thing, but he was a, a great athlete and 
he could put the bat on the ball and he was a solid defender at first base and play in the outfield. And I think, you know, during the, the spring of 84, when they released Rick Leach, it was like a numbers thing. You know, we don't have a place for him. Um, I think we just need to let him go and hope that he catches on with somebody. But, you know, I was disappointed because I was really good friends with Rick. I, yeah. I, you know, I, and I was really good friends with Glenn Wilson and John Walkenfuss when they got traded to Philly for uh, Willie Hernandez and uh, Dave Burton in that deal. So I was like, holy cow, I thought these guys were, you know, kind of part of our nucleus that we were building on. And here they just shipped them all out. But, you know, obviously I didn't know what the future held or, or I didn't need any. I did not know anything about Willie Hernandez or Dave Bergman when we made that deal. But I do know that I was very good friends with Glenn Wilson and very good friends with John Walkenfuss and very good friends with Rick Leach. And it was like, you know, they just threw three of my guys off the boat. And I was a little frustrated by that, but it obviously all worked out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that 84 season, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, the one thing that you just, you always hear when people talk about that team is, the 35 and five start. Um, but a lot of the teams that start off on fire like that, they cool down considerably. They're kind of 500 for the next couple of months and it ends up being a great season, but not as great as the start. You guys, you might've cooled off a little bit, but not much. I mean, the, you know, the win percentage stayed, you know, really high the entire season. Obviously you guys went 104 games. One stat that just blew me away, 83% of, what was it? You guys won 83% of the games that you scored first. And it, it was interesting because looking at the World Series, obviously a five-game series that year, you scored first in every game. You won four of them. And, and it's interesting looking at that, the first game of the World Series, I, I interviewed Lou Whitaker for the show a few months ago. And in game one, I, I think he got a hit like in the first or second pitch of the game. And then Trammell... I think he scored off of like a Trammell single, like one pitch late, like it's one, nothing. And there's like three pitches have been thrown in the world series. Um, you know, just kind of setting the tone for the way you guys kind of played. Or I think he just turned Lou and Allen loose. You know, he, yeah. at, that, at that point, that stage of their careers, he had complete trust in them. They knew what they were doing. So it was like, you know, whatever you got to do to get on, get on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Lou ever got, you know, his credit that he deserved. And, um, you know, I still think he's a hall of fame player, you know, the irony, and I'm sure you or other people that follow the game, when you look at Alan Trammell and, and Lou Whitaker's statistics throughout their career, they're almost identical. It's crazy. Almost identical all the way down, which is crazy. And they're the longest running double play combination in the history of baseball. So it's yeah. like, why, why does not Lou deserve to be in the hall of fame with Tram? I thought that would have been a, a great, you know, plug for for baseball to have those guys going at the same time and i'm hopeful that lou gets in there at some point you know down the road because i think he deserves to but those guys were the catalysts of our team the whole year long yeah you know lou and out lou and out i made the comment i should have had i said i actually feel bad I, you know i ended up with 98 rbis during the season i said i should have had like 170 rbis because every time i looked up those guys were on base and in scoring position <laughs> right. um so i i kind of felt bad that I picked that year to hit, I think I hit 237 or whatever, even though I, I hit some home runs and, you know, drove some runs in August, but I, I could have cast in a lot more than I did if I would have, you know, picked up the pace. But, you know, those two were phenomenal. They were the table setters. They got on base all the time. They, they got things going for us. And uh, it was no different in the playoffs, no different in the World Series. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that that's that game one. And then, and then, you know, just, you know, continued every game, like they're on base, you guys are up and, you know, a couple of times. Well, I mean, the, the crazy thing, and I, I kind of remembered this, but my God, Kurt Bavakwa came out of nowhere and just had a hell of a series. I think he batted 500 or 485 or something like that. I mean, if, if the Padres had somehow figured out a way to come back and win that thing, he's your MVP on, uh, oh, on the San Diego side. Yeah, Kurt Pavacqua. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is uh, when the first year that I played at the major league level, um, I went to um, Puerto Rico to play winter ball. And I was on the winter ball team in Maiguez, Puerto Rico with Jack. And uh, we had a couple other guys, Sheldon Burnside and uh, Steve Baker. And um, anyway, Kurt Bavacqua was on our team. So I got to know Kurt Bavacqua. Kurt Bavacqua was, you know... <laughs> Kurt Vaughn was out there, you know, and, yeah. and even though I thought he was a good player, he was just out there, you know, hey, there's no telling what he would do at any given time. And uh, uh, we all, we all used to laugh, you know, um, at him, you know, not more so for, you know, just the fun that he would have, you know, and the crazy lines that he would come up with, things he would do. I remember we were playing one time, I think it was an Arecibo, he was playing third base and the hitter, well, I think we we're in extra innings or whatever. And it was uh, um, like the, I mean, deep in extra innings. We were like in the 13th or 14th inning and the hitter swung and, and the bat flew out of his hand and went down to third base where Bavacqua was playing. So when the bat stopped rolling, Bavacqua walked over to the bat and picked it up and slammed it on the ground and busted it in half, threw it back on plate. You know what I mean? He almost started a melee right there, you know, but that's just, Kurt Bavacqua, but yeah. he just happened to choose that particular time during the World Series to go off, and it was like, it was probably more frustrating for you know me and Jack, and you know because we had seen him play, and he wasn't really a you know known as a great hitter or power guy, but he kicked our butt, you know yeah. he was just on fire, so uh, you know more power to him, um, you know, and as you say, if if they would have won the series, he probably would have been the MVP, but uh, you know it was. Uh, it was nice to see that, uh, you know, even though I say these things about him, I still appreciate him as a good friend and all that. And it was, it was fun to see him do well at, you know, my own teammates expense a lot of times, but uh, you know, I was happy for Kurt that he did well. Yeah. And, and, and I, I guess part of it resonated because there's this great clip. Uh, they, they show these um, I think Mel Allen narrated world series highlights. And so it's like, you know, it's like 30 minutes or 35 minutes, something like that. And it's, you know, Dick Williams, who managed the Padres in that series, and Sparky are both mic'd up. And so you can hear, and the umpires and a couple of different people, a couple of like the third base coaches. So you pick up a lot of things that I had never heard before. Uh, and so it just so happens there's a couple of times where he's on third base and he's chatting with the third base coach. So it's kind of funny. But there's there's a great sequence where um, I think it's Alan Wiggins comes in and tries to score. And you get the tag, but it's not quite clear. Did you get him or not? He's called out but you kind of track him down and tag him, you know, maybe six feet away from the, from the plate. And Dick Williams comes out and is arguing it. And the, the umpire was like, well, you know, I called it. He's like, well, if you called it, why did he chase him down six feet behind the plate? And the, you know, the umpire just kind of holds his ground and then Williams leaves and he comes back and he's like, did you think you missed him? <laughs> and you said, no, 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 man, I got him. But I just, I just wanted to make sure. Cause I knew he'd missed the plate. <laughs> it was a, like, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I mean that, and that's exactly how it went down. You know, I, I couldn't hear 
Paul Rungi was the umpire. Okay. And you know, there's I've seen pictures, obviously, and I've seen the uh, the video of that play. And Alan Wiggins never even came close to touching home plate. Right. And, and I, if I touched him, I just grazed his jersey because he was so far away from the from the plate. But uh, because I could not hear the umpire, and as everybody knows, if the umpire doesn't make a call, that's because either you didn't tag him or the runner didn't tag home plate. So the play's not over yet. Right. So I jumped up and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't tell. So I was like, I got to, I got to tag him again. So, you know, I kept trying to tag him and he kept backing up towards the dugout and I finally was able to tag him. And then Dick Williams went through all that with Paul. And, you know, I remember Paul saying, well, you know, if you called him out and uh, you thought that he tagged him, it's curious why he would go after him. And he goes, I remember Paul saying, well, it was a foolish thing, but you know, he did tag. And I'm thinking, well, that foolish thing. So anyway, I had my the the irony in that was I always felt like Paul Rungy held that against me. Because when I went to the National League to play for the Phillies, he used to, I mean, if anybody stuck it to me in the National League, it was Paul Rungy. You know, I I just felt like he was out to get me from the day I showed up in the National League. So, you know, I wore that the whole time I was over there. But uh yeah, that was one of those plays that uh you know, I, I'll never forget that. Yeah, oh, that, that's interesting. I didn't know that background. Um, and then, and then, as I mentioned, so it's game five. You guys are up three games to one. You're winning four three. It's the seventh inning. Goose Gossage comes in, as intimidating a relief pitcher as there is, right? So he comes in, and you've played him many times, right? Because he was with the White Sox and he was with the Yankees before he oh. came over to San Diego. So you know him. Um, he comes in. You're the first guy he's going to face. What what are you thinking at that point? You guys are winning four three, but it's four three. What are you thinking? That I have not had very much success against this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I wore the guy out. I mean, he pretty much wore everybody else out. But uh, I, you know, the only thing I was thinking of was I know I'm going to get a fastball. You know, I know he's going to come after me, and if I don't get him early on, he's going to throw that slider, and I probably have no chance hitting that unless he hangs something over the middle. So, uh, and, and the funny thing was, is for whatever reason, I mean, the movie Ghostbusters had come out during that year mm-hmm. and it was one of the top, you know, movies at the time. Well, somebody up in the, uh, playing the organ started playing the music to Ghostbusters. So instead of saying, you know, they went through the music and instead of saying Ghostbusters, they were yelling Goosebusters. You know, that was the lead in to my at bat. So I was thinking, oh, man. So I was thinking, well, now these guys are pissing him off. He's going to drill me. You know, so I didn't know what he was going to do. But, you know, as it turns out, you know, he came after me and I put a good swing on a pitch and hit a line drive. I didn't know, you know, if I had actually got enough altitude on to get out of the ballpark, but it went out of the ballpark like that fast. So I was like, wow. So, you know, I'm running around the bases and I feel pretty good about myself that I finally connected and then connected at the right time, you know, in the World Series off of Gossage. So I know that it, you know, it ended up being the margin of difference, you know, in our victory. Um, but then Gibby, you know, obviously came up later and, and hit his home run. And it was very, very much more dramatic than mine was. And it was actually so much fun. To, I was on deck yeah. again, you know, for that. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking the whole time, well, he's got to walk Gibby because, you know, that's just the, that's the right thing to do. I mean, there's one out, 
Um, he sets up the double play, you know, Gibby's left-handed, you know, the whole nine yards and I'm right-handed and I'm thinking, surely he's not walking him because I hit a home run off in my last time because he struck me out a thousand times before that. But, you know, I think, uh, I think, uh, his arrogance, if I might say that got the best of him at that particular moment. And he just, you know, he had had a lot of success against Gibby in the, in the past. So he wanted to go after him and, and thought he could strike him out. And, you know, and, and when Dick came out there, you know, I've watched those video clips as well. Everybody listened to the mic'd up version of it. And, and he walked out and said, so, you know, uh, so you're, you're telling me you, you think you're going to strike him out. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to strike him out. And, and Dick's like, Oh, okay. You know, and I, you know, the funny thing for me though, is uh, this thing that Gibby and Sparky had, you know, where Gibby's telling him, you know, I'll bet you 10 bucks that I hit a home run off him. And I'm thinking, this is like one of the most crucial times in the game. Who thinks to look in the dugout and, you know, like, I'll bet you 10 bucks I'm going to hit a home run off guy. Right. You know, and then, you know, the iconic, because uh, they've even made T-shirts about, you know, he don't want to walk you. You know, that's what Sparky's threw up four fingers. And he don't want to walk you. You know, yeah. and they told him, I saw, I remember him going, use your hands, use your hands. You know, and, and, you know, dramatic fact, I've seen Gibby do some pretty dramatic things in his career, but that was, I mean, obviously, uh, for me, the, the on the top of the list because it kind of clinched the, the World Series for us. But it was pandemonium after that happened. It was so much fun. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. I mean, what a, it's just, such, I had never seen the video of Sparky doing that until until I watched the clip. And yeah, it's just so funny. It's, it's kind of like what you were saying back at the beginning when Sparky came in, like he just knows how to kind of push the buttons and yeah. that's great. Well, you know, he, you know, I will say that he and Gibby had a unique relationship together. And, you know, um, I think one of the things that you give Sparky credit for is uh, really pushing the right buttons with Gibby throughout, you know, the time that he was there, you know, Gibby struggled at times. Uh, it seems like Sparky always knew the right things to do, the right things to say to motivate Gibby. And, uh, you know, I think uh, that particular year, you know, in 83, Kirk did not have a very good year. And he rebounded in 84 and had a phenomenal year, I thought. You know, he uh, had a big offensive year. He had um, made vast improvement in the outfield. In fact, one of the plays that he made or was a part of being made in that one game where Bavacqua hit the ball down in the right field corner in, in San Diego. Yeah. And he ran to the bullpen and fished that ball out and turned around and threw a strike to Whitaker, who was the cutoff guy in right field. And then Whitaker turned around, I mean, like, boom, boom, just like we did it a thousand times in spring training, like I was talking about. And Lou turned around and fired a strike to, to uh, third base to get Bavacqua. And, you know, Bavacqua had stumbled a little bit around second base, which gave us just the time that we needed to make that play happen. But it was because those guys, I mean, and that became – a teaching tool for, you know, our, our outfield instructor in the minor leagues with the Tigers when I was uh, managing stuff down there. He had asked me one time, I said, you know, if I was you, I would look this play up. You're always trying to, you know, work with our guys about, you know, um, fundamentally how to do this cutoff and the right way to do it. I said, these guys executed to perfection in the World Series. And I'm sure there's got it. They have everything on YouTube. So check it out and see if you can find it. Well, sure enough, he found it. And then, before you know it, all the outfielders were in the room watching that play and all the you know infield guys. So, I mean, I that was that was one of the great play one of the great plays I thought 
uh, in the World Series that, you know, doesn't get the credit that it should get. I mean, people bring it up occasionally, but I mean, that was a huge play. That could have changed the, the outcome of that game and possibly the entire uh, World Series. So, yeah. Yeah, that was that was game one, right? I think it was. I might have been game one. I yeah, honestly, it was game I one. Remember. Yeah, because because they won game two in San Diego, and then and then you guys took three in Detroit. So yeah, that was game one, and you guys had had the lead, and they were kind of slowly chipping away, and yeah. so that was a huge moment, you know, getting him at third on what would have been <clears throat> a triple. Yeah, perfect execution by both guys. Um, yeah, and and obviously it meant something to Sparky to win it because I saw a great quote. He he wrote a book afterwards, I guess, called Bless You Boys, The Diary of the 84 Tiger Season. Yeah. And he says, I have to be honest, I've waited for this day since the day I was fired by Cincinnati. I think they made a big mistake when they did that. Now no one can ever question me again. You know, everybody's got pride, right? And Well, I think that comment was justified. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, everybody's got pride. I don't, you know, I, I honestly uh, was doing some research a few years ago. And I looked at Sparky's uh, resume coming from Cincinnati, and I'm like, how, am I, how could they fire this guy? <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, you know. So uh, then again, I, uh, on the other flip side of that, can uh, see the justification for Jim Campbell, you know, wanting to sign him and bring him over because he was so successful, and uh, you know, obviously my guy Les had to get booted in the process, but you know, Sparky was just. Uh, he was the ingredient we needed, no doubt. And, uh, you know, he put his magic to work when he came over. Yeah. And and I have to ask, fr from a catching perspective, and, and there were, you know, many years where you were like, you know, kind of first or second or third in caught stealing and fewest stolen bases allowed and fielding percentage, things like that. Um, when it came to like, managing a staff, I mean, obviously in Detroit, you have Morris and Petrie and uh, Milt Wilcox and, and later Frank Tanana and Walt Terrell. Obviously, Willie Hernandez is the MVP of that 84 season. And then and then even in California, you know, you, where you went, well, you went to Philadelphia for a couple of years and then California, you had Blylevin yeah. and Chuck Finley and Jim Abbott. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of managing the staffs. I, I'm assuming, you know, you would say every pitcher is different, but, you know, what, what was your kind of mindset when you approached the staffs? Well, you know, from a catching perspective, I mean, everybody is a little bit different. And, uh, right. I, I've always said that I always tried to operate off my pitcher's strengths when I called a game. We didn't have the scouting reports back then that they have now sure. um, with analytics and uh, all the uh, TV and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, the one thing that uh, they would always identify for us when we started a series with anybody, who were the, give me the, couple guys that are hot you know offensively who are the guys that we want to stay away from in a situation where they could do some damage so once that was established then uh you know i i was a watcher behind the plate you know i watched to see what guys did at the plate whether they they were divers or they bailed a little bit or whatever they might do some little nuance that would give me a feeling of okay we can we can pound this guy this way or we can, you know, get him to chase or whatever we're doing. So, I, you know, I watched them. I watched to see what adjustments they would make. I called my games first and foremost on my pitcher's strength. And, uh, you know, a close second behind that was 
what adjustments the hitters were making to what we were doing to counter that with something else. And that's basically, as you well know, what the game is all about. It's a cat and mouse game. You just yeah. a continuous game of adjustments, you know, uh, whether you're hitting or whether you're trying to, you know, get somebody out um, that's hitting. So um, I had some great pitchers to work with throughout my career, obviously in Detroit, we had the guys that you mentioned um, that we, for the most part, I was on, I tried, just tried to get on the, the same page with them, tried to get a, a good feel for how they like to throw games, how they like to set people up, uh, what pitches they like to use for out pitches. If they were uh, guys that could, you know, uh, that wanted to bounce pitches in the dirt um, on two strikes or ride something up in the zone or, or whatever. And that depended on the hitter as well. But, you know, and then I, I went to, Philadelphia and, and Steve Bedrosian end up winning the, the Cy Young out of the bullpen there, you know, which was kind of wild because I had just caught Willie who won a Cy Young in Detroit and then Bedrosian won it. Um, and then I went to, um, to California and I had, like you say, Abbott, Finley, Bly Levin, Langston, Kirk McCaskill, Brian Harvey in the bullpen. And uh, I mean, what Witt. a, what a pitching, huh? Mike Witt. Mike Witt, I'm sorry, Mike Witt. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, it was quite the quite the staff. We had, and we had a, you know, if you go down our roster and look at our players, it was always a mystery to me why we didn't win more games. I mean, we had some yeah. pretty dang, pretty dang good guys on that team. But uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, as far as catching goes, that was just always my main philosophy: try to go with you know whatever your pitcher's strength is, and um, and until you have to make an adjustment and usually worked out pretty well. Yeah. And, and I have to ask one question about one of your angels pitchers, Jim Abbott. I mean, it has to be one of the most extraordinary stories in, in sports history. I mean, a guy born without uh, his hand and, you know, is, is able to pitch at the major league level, throw a no hitter, uh, you know, fire off a pitch, quickly shift his glove to, you know, his hand so that he can field what was it like coming in? I mean, you obviously knew his story, but then all of a sudden there he is, you're catching him. What's that like? Well, before I, before I get into that, let me just throw one more name at you. Mark Icorn. Mark Icorn was part of our bullpen as a setup guy. And I would encourage everybody that's listening to this because people probably don't even remember the name, but this guy's got hall of fame numbers <laughs> and he was the most unsung hero throughout his career. If you look him up, he's got phenomenal numbers um, as, a, as a setup guy, as a bullpen guy. So I would, you know, I'm just throwing that in because he was a major contributor to our efforts out in Anaheim. Sure. Um, but, you know, Jim Abbott. So Jim Abbott is a Michigan guy. Went to the University of Michigan. He watched the Tigers teams that I played on play. So I know that he was a Tigers fan growing up. So it was kind of ironic that here our careers collide at that point when He's making his debut uh, professionally with the Angels, and I'm out there catching it. So it was kind of a fun deal for, for me. Uh, I know that I probably aggravated him a few times because I um, did some things that he wasn't real pleased with. But, uh, you know, like I just for me, I was trying to teach him something, and I don't know if it actually came across that way or he just got pissed at me. And whatever. Well, when he first came up and was on our starting staff, I'm, I'm going to say uh, early on, um, and, and like you say, 
um, before anybody really knew anything about him, teams used to stack their lineup against him because he was left-handed. Mm. Okay. So they throw all these right-handed hitters in the lineup. Well, I think one of the first few teams that we played were the, the uh, Royals. Okay. And uh, they had, you know, as many right-handed bats as they could get in there along with their, you know, I mean, they're not going to take George Brett out of the lineup but, and, and their other lefties, but the, you know, they tried to stack their lineup, which played right into his hands because he threw a natural cut fastball. I don't even think he could throw the ball straight, to be honest with you. Uh, everything he threw was was a cutter, 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 cutter. Him and Al Leiter were like the same, because I had caught Al Leiter when I was in Toronto, and they both had the same action on their fastball. But we were playing uh, Kansas City one night, and I'm calling, you know, I'm calling the game, and I call fastball cutter. So he throws cutter, guy swings, jams the crap out of him, and hits a little nubber to the infield, and throws him out well i keep calling cutters and he's jamming everybody breaking bats nobody's doing anything against him i think at that you know like the fifth or sixth inning he's pitching like a one or two hitter and he's just dominating the game so after he got an out in uh you know i'll say the sixth inning he he calls me out to the mound and he goes hey he goes let's start working in some of my other pitches and i go like what and he goes, well, you know, I'd like to work on my curveball or maybe mix in some changeups. I go, dude, you're killing these guys. I go, they can't even touch you. <laughs> and I, he goes, well, I still want to work in some breaking balls. And, you know, and I go, I go, you can work on that stuff in the bullpen. I go, you know, finish the job out here right now. So, I mean, he was adamant about it. I go, okay. So I went back behind the plate and I put down a two curveball. So he throws a curveball and gets it over for a strike. And, you know, I know he's feeling good about himself. And then, he looks in for the next sign. I put down a curveball. He throws another curveball. And then the next pitch, I give him a curveball. And <laughs> so I did that like three or four times in a row. And then I see him just kind of drop his head like, man. You know, so I said, hey, if you want to throw curveballs, I'll call a curveball every time. You throw it whenever you want to or shake to whatever else. I go, I don't, I don't know what you want to do. I said, you're freaking dominating these guys. And they can't even touch you. But yet you want to work on other stuff. I said, you know, I get the fact that you want to throw your breaking ball and there's times to do it and times not. This isn't one of those times. Right. So anyway, he got, I, I'm pretty sure he got pissed at me. <laughs> and, and, you know, he ended up pitching a really good game. But, uh, you know, we just went through that little power struggle there for a while. But I was, you know, I was trying to, you know, in my own way, teach him that, hey, when, when you're, when this, whatever's working, if it's working, don't mess with it. Don't change it until they until they make you change. Don't change. Right. Okay. So I mean, and and the whole one handed thing. You know, guys tried to bunt on it, and you know, naturally he wore his glove over his his stub, and then he threw, and as quickly as he threw the ball, he would you know slide his his good hand into the glove and be ready. Well, I've seen a couple guys hit line drives through the box that almost took his head off. He didn't quite get his glove on fast enough, and boom, went right by him. So that was kind of scary. But guys would try to bun on him because they thought that, you know, there's no way this guy can field, you know, and and make the transition. And and But he was phenomenal. I mean, Jim yeah. Abbott is a, is was a great athlete. I mean, he played football. He was a quarterback on his football team in, college, or in high school. And I've seen him play golf and I've seen him do other things. He's just a great athlete that, Incredible. you know, that hand thing doesn't slow him down at all. 
Well, when they were bunting on him, he'd just jump off the mound like a cat and field it barehanded and throw him out. So after they started, you know, figuring out, well, we can't bunt on this guy, they quit doing that. And they'd have to attack him naturally. But, uh, uh, you know, he was just, for me, just a great pitcher, great guy. I mean, one of the greatest guys you'd ever come across and a whole lot of fun for me to catch. And I, I enjoyed every minute being with him. I know, like I say, that I pissed him off once or twice in his career, but I was only trying to get a little bit, get him a little bit better. Yeah. It, it sounds like a scene. It sounds like a scene right out of the movie Bull Durham. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the last one I'll ask you about, uh, cause I obviously I've taken up a ton of your time here is, uh, uh, on those angels teams, you know, towards the end of your career, uh, playing with Burt Blylevin. That must have been fun. Great pitcher, first and foremost. Obviously a Hall of Famer. Um, I remember, gosh, one of the years, I forget what game, what number game. He won, you know, some milestone game. Uh, and when we came back to the clubhouse, there was like, I think his wife had bought him like that many red roses or whatever. And it was like in the 200 and something. So <laughs> I mean, it was the biggest bouquet of flowers I ever saw in my life. But uh, Burt Blyland was a prankster. You know, he was the master of the hot foot and burning people's shoelaces and all that. Um, it, it, the, he used to mess with uh, um, Jimmy. Uh, his, his claim to fame was he was uh, uh, Babe Ruth's roommate. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, gosh, I'll think of it before this. Is, he was one of a he wasn't actually a, a coach under contract, but, uh, you know, the funny thing is, and I, he was like 90 years old or whatever, but he was a master fungal hitter. He used to make fungals out of baseball bats and he'd cut the barrel in half. And I was told back in the day that he used to run the pitchers out in the outfield and he used to be able to hit, you know, like guys would stand there and throw balls to him as they would run in the outfield like a quarterback they would catch it well he used to hit balls off of his fungal bat and put it right there every time they said he was phenomenal at that so uh jimmy reese jimmy reese okay so you know and people always say hey you know i i, I heard that you were babe ruth's roommate and he goes well there's some truth to that he goes i actually roomed with his luggage i didn't actually room with him because <laughs> he was <laughs> never in his room <laughs> but uh that's funny. But Bly Levin, when he was, you know, and Jimmy used to stay uh, uniformed up, you know, during the games and, and whoever was managing, whether it was Doug Rader, I think it was Doug Rader, used to give him a job of charting pitches. So he'd sit in the dugout and he'd have his clipboard and have the innings all marked off. And he would just, you know, one by one, the pitcher that we were facing would throw, you know, he'd chart all the pitches. Bly Levin used to, uh, you know, towards the end of the game, um, he'd go over to the cooler or the uh, uh, Gatorade thing and get a thing full of Gatorade, cup full of Gatorade. And Jimmy'd have all of his, almost all of his clipboard completely done. It was perfect. They had all the numbers down. And he would act like he'd trip and he'd throw that Kool-Aid right, right on the clipboard, all over his paper, all over his uniform. <laughs> and it was either that or he'd dump a million seeds on him. He's always throwing something at him. He's just always harassing. But, you know, I think that, you know, that was Bert's way of showing him how much we appreciate him. You know, he had to mess with me, mess with everybody else. So if he wasn't burning your shoelaces, he was, you know, jacking around with you, you know, doing something like that. But, uh, 
you know, Bert was just a, a pleasure to be around and a great competitor. I remember, you know, I used to go down to the bullpen to warm the starters up. And, you know, I would usually take over for the uh, bullpen catcher after, you know, once they got going, I'd go in there and catch for a while before I'd head down and get ready for the game. And I remember, you know, before I got back there to, to catch him, I stood in the batter's box like I wanted to track his pitches to watch, you know, what he was doing. He freaking drilled me right in the rib. And he did it on purpose. I know he did it on purpose because he was <laughs> laughing when he did it. So I was thinking, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So he was he was a, a great guy to have on that staff because we had a lot of young pitchers and he was a veteran guy. He had great stuff. He knew how to pitch. So he was a go-to guy. He was a resource for, for all of those guys. And uh, I think he, you know, I mean, Marcel Latchman was our pitching coach and he didn't really need a lot of help, but, you know, Bert was kind of a backup reinforcement guy. If the guys needed to go talk to somebody, he was, he was that guy, but just a lot of fun to be around. Great teammate. Yeah. That's, that's, that's cool. Okay. Well, Lance Parrish, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and sharing all these stories. I mean, obviously those iconic, uh, 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 Tigers teams from the mid eighties where you were, you know, one of the true leaders of the team and, and all the gold gloves and silver sluggers and, and, you know, the, the stories about the 84 world series and, uh, and, you know, kind of various teammates and managers and everything been a real pleasure having you on chasing. Heart. Well, I appreciate you having me and uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming up. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to chasing hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Life is like. Life is like.